I'd encourage you, if you've got your Bible with you this morning, to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Last week, we began talking about what does it look like to have a Christ-like marriage? What are we as husbands and wives called to do in verses 22 through 33 of Ephesians chapter 5? Today will be part two of that, and we'll finish our section on husbands and wives and marriages, though what it looks like to love Christ and be filled with the Spirit in our homes will continue on in the weeks to come. But last week we started talking about husbands and wives and the institution of marriage and quickly realized that the institution of marriage itself, in fact, God himself, the the problem is not with them. The problem that we see in marriages lies with us. It lies within me. It's the sin of husband and wife that wreck things and so often influences how we interact with our spouses, our sinful nature, the world around us, our culture, um, even well-meaning friends and families sometimes we look to in how we interact with our spouse to determine that. And last week we mentioned just how that can't be what determines how we interact with our spouses. Only God's word determines that. And we also talked about how marriage is rooted in covenant keeping. We had this idea about mutual submission. It comes from verse 21. And the idea of mutual submission, the truth of it, and mutual servanthood, serving one another, it doesn't cancel out the reality of leadership within husband and wife. Because servanthood does not cancel out leadership. It actually defines it. And Jesus modeled this. We should affirm the unique roles of husband and wife in marriage without denying mutual submission. Because both what the husband is called to do in loving his wife and what the wife is called to do in submitting to her husband, these things flow out of the finished work of Christ. Stuff that he has already done. The things husbands and wives are called to do are the things that Jesus has faithfully modeled already. So there is hope for hurting marriages because Christ still loves the church. He has not given up on his bride. And so be encouraged by that. I I hope that last Sunday and today that um, you'll join with me as we try to recover and then celebrate God's good design for marriage. Our marriages should produce the mutual joy of both husband and wife, but that's not the primary thing that a marriage is for. Marriage is meant in this life to be permanent, but they're supposed to showcase something eternal. And so you'll hear this more than once from me today. You've already heard it from me last week, but it bears repeating. Our marriages picture the enduring relationship between Christ and his bride. So if you're not married this morning, because I'm not talking to a room full of married people. If you're not married, again, please be encouraged. God can and will use you in your singleness, just as he can and will use somebody who's married. You don't have to be married to be valued by God. And you don't have to be married to be valued by this church. Every single believer, male, female, married or not, or single, Every one of us is gifted by God for service in the body. So being married certainly doesn't make you super sanctified or super spiritual or or anything like that. It's meant 
to be beneficial for the married person. I mean, remember what God said in the garden. He said it's not good for man to be alone. So marriage is meant to be beneficial for people who are married. But it doesn't automatically make you closer to God. Your singleness is not something that you should ever be ashamed of or discouraged about. So when we study marriage, whether you're married now or ever will be or not, remember that husbands do not justify their wives and wives do not justify their husbands. Only Jesus sanctifies and justifies. So let's read our text together. Chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much confusion. There is so much rebellion in our own hearts of what this should mean and look like in our marriages today. We don't want to be steered or driven by the sinfulness of our culture, for sure, or even the direction of our own hearts, because they tend to lead us astray. Lord, we solely want to be directed by your word this morning. So whatever barrier we have erected in our minds and our hearts about this, Lord, I pray that you would begin tearing it down so that the only thing that we have is your word to build on. Because it's what sustains us. It was, it's what gives us direction as we love those around us, specifically those we're married to. Give us grace as we talk about this more today. In Christ's name, amen. So to, to start this morning, I just want to expound a bit on what <clears throat> I mentioned last Sunday. I said last week that a husband's love and a wife's submission are directly connected with what Paul has already said in verse 15. He talked about carefully walking in wisdom. So when Paul refers to submitting to one another, this mutual submission idea in verse 21, he directly links it with walking in wisdom in verse 15. So in the original Greek sentence, verse 22, it says, wives submit to your husbands. That actually has no verb in the Greek. So literally, it just says wives to your husbands. So we have to figure out, we have to back up and figure out where the verb is in this. Grammatically, it's clear that Paul says to to wives and then to husbands, 
and then the children and then to bosses, this is a continuation of verse 21. So the flow of thought from 18 through 22 would, would look like this. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So the submission of wife to husband in verse 22, the love from husband to wife in verse 25, the obedience of children to parents in chapter 6, verse 1, and the obedience of servants to their masters or employees and employers in chapter 6, verse 5, are all expansions of the mutual submission principle that Paul gives in chapter 5, verse 21, where he talks about submitting to one another. So original language matters here to help us really understand what we're reading, what Paul is is getting at here. Submitting and loving and obeying, these are all expressions of submitting to one another, which is itself a description of what people do when they're filled with the Spirit. So I want to bring something up before we go on. When we talk about marriage, it's pretty easy for us to identify what our spouses need to work on, isn't it? Your husband's sitting out here and the pastor starts talking about submission and your mind probably instantly goes to the last disagreement you had with your wife and you can quickly in those moments pinpoint all the areas that she was wrong, right? Wives, don't laugh too hard because you probably do it as well. You do the same thing. It's so easy to get stuck in this destructive cycle where the husband says, I can't love my wife because she doesn't submit to me or respect me. And wives say, well, I can't submit to my husband because he doesn't love me the right way. Certainly not like Christ loves the church. So we're almost at this impasse, this stalemate. In in the book, Love and Respect, they give this cycle a name. They call it the crazy cycle. You know, that's an appropriate title for this thing. Nothing changes in the crazy cycle. And there's little joy because each spouse is always waiting on the other person to keep their end of the bargain before they keep theirs. Do you see how selfish and prideful that is though? Friends, the Bible never tells us to make sure the other person is doing what they're supposed to be doing before we do what we're supposed to do. Did you stick with me with that? Jesus teaches, I think, actually the exact opposite of that when he talks about the speck and the log in our eye. He says to to deal with your own sin first, not wait on someone else. Because in the course of any given day, every husband or every wife could probably look at the other person and, and realize they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They are not holding up their end of the bargain. I thought long and hard about this statement and I believe it to be true. If you only obey God when your spouse obeys him first, you will never consistently obey God. Aren't you so thankful, though, that God's forgiveness isn't based on us being perfect first? Since that's true and we're thankful for that, 
why do we treat our spouses like their imperfections are bigger deals than ours? It's hypocritical. If we're always waiting for the other person to change before us, we will be perpetually stuck in that crazy cycle. And then I'm afraid possibly even start looking for a way out. This can even cause us to convince ourselves that God wants something for us that his word forbids. And then we deny the truth because it doesn't fit into our perception of reality. We have to break free from this, husbands and wives. And in order to break free from this, I think we have to give our spouses and ourselves over to the Lord and just say, God, I'm going to obey you regardless what my spouse does or does not do because I trust you and I believe what you say is true. So as we continue to talk about these things and to study this this morning, I, married folks, do something for me, please. Please refrain from mentally raking your spouse over the coals this morning. It's so easy to see their faults. But instead of doing that, would you do something else? Whatever standard you're going to hold them to, hold yourself to first. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm absolutely not suggesting that we cover up abuse or some other harmful behavior by a spouse in the least bit. I'm simply suggesting that each one of us would shine the light of truth into our own hearts first and trust that God, through his word, can change our spouses without us having to demand or punish them or manipulate the situation in the least bit. Because I get it. Hearing what the Bible says to husbands and wives in this section is sometimes like nails on a chalkboard. It's unpleasant, to say the least. That's precisely why, as we'll talk about more, it requires the power of the Spirit to live this way. Getting married has a real painful way of revealing how selfish we are, doesn't it? Everything in us, it seems, wants to fight against this counsel from God that we're reading. But brothers and sisters, we desperately need the Spirit for unity, harmony, and peace in our marriages today and every day. Hopefully, the way forward will become clearer as we continue to study these verses this morning. And let's continue by looking at kind of towards the end of the section, verse 31. Paul here quotes Genesis chapter 2, <clears throat> where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul <clears throat> then looks back on this quote in the next verse, in verse 32, and he calls it a mystery. He says, This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So a couple of questions just came to my mind, well, why is this a mystery? And number two, what is it about a man and a woman coming together as one flesh that's so profound in Paul's mind? For, for clarification, mystery here, it's not talking about something that's too complicated or vague even for us to understand. Mystery here is referring to the hidden purpose of God that's now being made clear for our understanding and benefit and our enjoyment. Its true meaning, the meaning of this mystery, had been concealed in times past. But now God was openly revealing that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. 
It's like an image or a metaphor or a picture that stands for something more than only a man and a woman becoming one flesh in marriage. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. So we could say that at its deepest core, the meaning or mystery of marriage is that. It's meant to be a living image of how Christ and the church relate to each other. I think this is confirmed and explained in the verses leading up to this in 28 through 30. Because Paul describes the parallels between Christ and the church being one body and then the husband and the wife being one flesh. You see how those don't go together how those go together here? The union of one flesh between man and woman means that they're now in a sense one body. So the care that a husband has for his wife, he actually has for himself. That's what Paul means in verse 29. He says no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. What a husband does for his wife, he does for himself because they're one. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we're the hands and the feet and the ears and the eyes of his body. Husbands are supposed to nourish and cherish their wives as their own bodies, verse 28 says. So just as the husband is one flesh with his wife, so Christ is one body with the church. When the husband cherishes and nourishes his wife, he cherishes and nourishes himself. When Christ cherishes and nourishes the church, he cherishes and nourishes himself. And so the, mar- the marriage between husband and wife, it displays a copy, if you will, a copy of a better original or a deeper truth. The original and deeper truth is God's marriage to his people, which now Paul is saying is being revealed as Christ's marriage to the church. And the copy that we see is human marriage between a husband and a wife. The roles of husband and wife, I think, are easy enough to identify from these verses, but there's too much overlap for husbands to ignore what's being said to the wife and vice versa. So I hope that we'll all kind of listen up as we go back to verse 22. Now, if we pluck out verse 22, 23, and 24, which are primarily directed towards wives, if we just pluck those out of context and take them away from the rest of chapter 5 and the rest of Ephesians, we're going to definitely walk away with a skewed and incomplete picture of how a wife is supposed to interact with her husband. But I think if we understand them, these verses in light of the surrounding text, we're going to find out that submission is maybe not what we first thought it was, or maybe even not what some people are telling us it is. Because rightly understood and implemented, I think biblical submission isn't restrictive at all or oppressive in the least bit. It's meant to be freeing. There's comfort and there's protection found in God's good order of authority. See, we can't separate what God says to wives about submission from what God says to husbands about loving leadership. Their roles are weaved together as part of the one flesh marriage covenant. But so many people want to dissect them and pull them apart and then use one against the other. And that's not Paul's intent for this text in the least bit. 
the first thing that Paul says when giving instructions to wives to submit to their husbands is because Christ is the head of the church. We see this in verse 23 and 4. Now again, I said this before, but I'll say it again. Christ demonstrates the husband and the church demonstrates the wife. And because the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands. Now some things to notice about these verses as we go. In, in verse 23, the first thing, the church submits to Christ because he is her savior. So, okay, does this mean then that the husband is the savior of the wife? Like, just like Jesus is the savior of the church? Hardly, no. Every husband is just as fallen in his nature as their wife is. This is not, an, or is this not another portrait of the mystery that Paul is referring to in all of this? I think these verses that we say are just for the wife, I think these verses are actually more for the husbands than they are for the wives because they teach us why the church submits to Jesus. What's her motivation for submitting to Christ? Well, let's notice some things. What did Christ do for the church as her head? Just think through his life for just a moment. One thing we could for sure say, the first thing on your list is that he resisted temptation in this life so that he would be the spotless sacrifice for sin. You can imagine all the things that he was tempted with. All the same things that we're tempted with today. Just maybe clothed differently, if you will. But he refused the carnal and sinful pleasures of, his, of this life for the sake of his bride. He resisted temptation. Second thing, he obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. And in doing so, he proved himself to be faithful. Even when he knew that it was going to cost him everything. His very life his face was still set to the cross. He was undeterred from going to the cross for his bride. And then, thirdly, he died. He gave it all so that his bride, the church, would be saved. See, the church submits to Christ in all things because he is worthy of submission based on his life and his sacrifice. Husbands, how we lead our wives is supposed to picture this. And so we need to ask ourselves some, some critical questions here, some hard questions here. Number one, as a husband, am I refusing the carnal and sinful temptations around me for the sake of my bride? Do I divert my eyes to to the things that would cause me to lust or stumble? Or do I linger in that look and commit adultery in my heart? Am I obeying God even when I know it's going to cost me something? Maybe everything that I had planned. Do I put the needs and well-being of my wife before my own, even when it's an inconvenience to me? Or do I seek my own pleasure first and just give her the leftovers of my time and emotions? Am I dying to myself more and more each day? Am I willing to sacrifice my plans and maybe even my ambitions? Am I willing to give myself away for the benefit of my bride? See, guys, fellow husbands, I think that 
if our wives saw us really striving for these things, most every one of them would joyfully and willingly submit to our leadership. Now the truth is, our marriages won't always be the shining example they're supposed to be. But our goal should be to operate in our God-given roles more and more consistently. Submission and love pour out of a heart that is surrendered to Jesus because He is always faithful. Every believer is instructed to submit to Christ because of His worthy leadership and sacrifice. Jesus is our obvious model, but husbands, we have to ask, is my leadership worthy of my wife's submission? What am I doing or what am I sacrificing that would motivate my wife to joyfully submit to my kind of leadership? Because the church willingly submits to Christ in response to His loving leadership. See, Jesus' leadership over the church is not ever coerced or manipulated. It's the eager and joyful response to His loving and sacrificial leading. So wives, when your husband displays a desire to lead, even though it may not be perfect, but when he displays a a desire to lead, do you respond in willing submission? Or do you resist not trusting his good intentions? Inevitably, you know this to be true if you've been married for any length of time, there are disagreements about how certain situations should be handled, about how to do certain things, what to do in certain areas. Do you follow your husband's lead, ladies, wives, or do you force your own way? Do you bring up all the previous ways that he's failed? Or do you trust God in him now? Remember, him being perfect cannot be the motivation for your actions. Think about biblical history just for a moment and God's leading his people. Throughout biblical history, God's people don't always understand his loving leadership. But you know what? They were still held accountable for following it or not. Now, To be clear, I'm not suggesting that wives blindly follow whatever their husbands say. In verse 24 here, Paul uses the phrase, in everything. I do not think that means that a wife should follow her husband's husband in matters that are sinful or reckless. I think it simply means that when a husband is exercising godly leadership, the wife should trust his judgment and follow his leading, even though she may not fully understand it. And I think here's where some of the protection for wives comes in. Guys, husbands, the case can be made that God is going to hold us responsible for the spiritual tone of our homes. Not my wife, me. Not our wives, us. Because see, we, we see this played out from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, Verse 16, Eve had not been created yet. Adam had been, and God taught Adam boundaries. He kind of laid out the the rules to him. He says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gave Adam these instructions 
Eve had not been created yet. So I don't think it's a stretch for us to say that God expected Adam to pass his instructions on to Eve. Unfortunately, you know the story. Uh, Adam didn't do a great job of that because Eve was later deceived by the serpent who was twisting God's words. And so either she didn't know them well enough, hadn't been taught well enough, or she didn't care enough. We find that in Genesis chapter 3. And then in that text, when they had sinned, what happened? Genesis 3 verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Eve was deceived, and Adam joined in that sin. But who did God call out to? He called out to Adam, not Eve. Okay, so God gave instruction to Adam. God called out to Adam after they had sinned. When God was then explaining the consequences for their sin, he handed it out to Adam last. I think it's clear here that God was holding Adam responsible for what had happened. Husbands, with our leadership comes responsibility that we can't get, get out of. Now you may be thinking, Man, I, don't, I don't think I can do this. Or maybe you're thinking, Rod, I never even asked for this. I just wanted to get married. I never asked for this responsibility. And maybe some of you are even thinking, I don't, I don't want this responsibility. I don't want to have to lead my family. Brothers, husbands, let me encourage you with this. There's hope that you and I can do this better than we are right now. Because Jesus has not only shown us by his example, but has also given us his spirit to empower us for the task. You're not alone in this. I think we actually see this whole thing played out in verses 26 through 29 of our text in Ephesians 5. Again, this is a pattern for husbands to follow. Paul tells husbands, he says, nourish and cherish your wife as Christ does for the church. You do this to yourselves. As you do it to your wives, you do it to yourselves kind of thing. Now, surely this is an emphasis on the husband caring for and protecting and providing for his wife. And it's the husband that takes the initiative in making sure he, he needs, uh, sh- the needs of his wife and family are met. Guys, husbands, do we love our wife in a way that helps her grow in Christ-likeness? Is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you or in spite of you? I read that question in a book this week and it has haunted me ever since. Is my wife more like Christ because she's married to me or in spite of me? Let me sum it up this way. And I think this is a fair statement. While both husbands and wives are responsible for their own obedience to Christ, husbands should be the ones to take the initiative and set the spiritual tone by how they lead. Think about verse 25 again with me. Who took action here? Christ did. Christ took a decisive action. He was not responding to something that the church had done. The church didn't plan its own salvation and sanctification. Christ did. 
He is taking the lead to save his bride. And how does he do it? By sacrificing for her. By serving her. So when Paul calls a husband to be the head of the wife by loving like Christ when he leads, he certainly has him sacrificing for her protection in mind. Now remember, these verses are Paul's illustration to us of something deeper, something eternal. And he speaks of marriage as a picture of Christ's love for the church in verses 23 through 24. And then he carries it on into 25 through 32. And in doing that, Paul is showing us that marriage displays the gospel. The fact that the church needed to be saved shows both her sinfulness and his saving grace. I mean, look at what these verses tell us about the kind of leader that Christ is as the head. Verse 25, he loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. Verse 26, he sanctified her. He cleansed her. Verse 27, he presented her. Verse 29, he nourishes and cherishes her. Christ cleansing his bride happens by water with the word, it says. This, I don't think, is baptism because Paul is emphasizing the spiritual cleansing that takes place. The word of the gospel is the means by which we receive spiritual cleansing, not not some physical act we do. So it's Jesus Christ who cleanses his bride spiritually through the word of the gospel. What's the effect of Christ cleansing his bride by the word? The effect is her perfection. She's holy and without blemish. Again, husbands do not sanctify or cleanse their wives in this way. This is all meant to point us to Christ. Everything here goes back to Him. Marriage is intended to point us to our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Husbands, these verses, verses 25, 26, and 27, they should make it abundantly clear to you that your leadership in the home should be rooted in service. Jesus Christ says multiple times he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and yet he displayed the kind of love and leadership that gets down on the ground and washes people's stinky feet it should be absolutely clear that the biblical picture of a husband laying down his life for his wife is directly opposed to any kind of male tyranny or chauvinism Christ took the initiative in laying down his life for his bride. And so we should take the initiative when it comes to leading in the home. It's important, it's critical that couples work together through difficulties. But really, the ultimate issue for husbands and wives is this. Are you surrendered to the lordship of Christ? Will you submit to him in all areas of your life? Because if the starting point of marriage is me. Boy, I'm starting in the wrong place. When marriage is difficult, because it will be, and it is sometimes, when it gets difficult, where do we turn? Where do you turn? Alcohol? Pornography? More time at the office? More time in the deer stand? More time on the golf course? No, 
No, you'll never fix your marriage if you run to anything but Christ in the hard times. You'll never fix your marriage by spending more time on the golf course or in the deer stand or at the bar or at the computer screen. The only way you can fix your marriage is by running to Christ. And so I'd encourage you to do that this morning as we wrap things up here. Let me just give one last word to wives and husbands. I'm not sure if you noticed this morning, but I focused more on challenging husbands today. Probably firstly because I am one and I needed to hear all of these things but also because I think we should be the ones taking the initiative to lead husbands. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that, wives, you just sit back with your arms crossed and patiently waiting for your husbands to like get it right, you know. So, ladies, wives, let me caution you about something and then give you some encouragement. The caution is this. You cannot demand that your husband take leadership. You just can't force him. You can't demand that of him. Think about that. Demanding something is exactly opposite of what a wife is being called to do in this passage. And I I believe it would be out of character for a wife who's filled with the Spirit to do that kind of thing, to demand that kind of thing. But another reason is this. I'll use an illustration to help. If your husband comes to you, ladies, and he says... How can I show you love? And you say, well, do the dishes for me in the evening times after dinner. I had a long day. Um, love for you to just do the dishes. That would really show your love for me. He says, okay. So the next night he he's there standing at the sink after dinner and he's doing the dishes and you look at him. There's a probably a huge tendency for you to look at him and think he's only doing the dishes because I told him to. He doesn't really want to do those. He's just doing it because he feels obligated to do it now. Right? I'm not wrong here, I don't think. By demanding your husband show you love by doing the dishes or by telling him this is how it needs to be, when he actually does them, you're probably not going to feel genuinely loved and cared for. You're just going to think he's doing it out of obligation, even if he is doing it out of genuine love for you. The desire of a husband to lead his wife and family doesn't come from outside influences, from your demands, or even from him listening to some preacher make him feel guilty on a Sunday morning, like it's happening right now. It doesn't come from the outside like that. Change, the desire for a husband to lead, comes from the inside, worked out by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. So instead of demanding, pray. Pray that God would awaken your husband to his need to lead. Practically, I'd give you this encouragement. Maybe set up a time for the two of you to just sit down and talk. A time when, when no one's angry already. A time when no one's overtired. A time when there's not something else that needs to be done. Set up a time together where you can just sit down and express the longings of your heart without, without any kind of ultimatums or any desire to impose guilt on him. In that time, appreciate him. Honor him for the ways that he is currently leading, even if you have to think long and hard about a way that he is. Remind him with joy 
of your thankfulness and love for him as your husband and remind him that you're continuing to pray over him, that you love him. Guys, husbands, if your wife comes to you requesting that kind of a conversation, you would do well to listen. We would do well to make time for that kind of discussion. Married men, husbands listening today, be encouraged that Christ does not call you to do what he won't empower you to do. You are called as a husband to do some really hard stuff. Leadership is not easy. Some of you own your own businesses or in charge of other employees or uh, lead in some other way like that. You understand the weight of the responsibility that comes with that in the workplace. Let me remind you, when you stand before the Father, when you stand before God one day, I don't know that he is going to ask you how well you led the people at your job. But I think there's strong reason to believe that he will ask you how you led your family, how you led your wife, and how you led your children. Leadership is not easy. But with every command from God comes a promise from God. Like in Isaiah 41.10, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Guys, even if your father never taught you how to lead very well, even if you did not have a good example of how to do this, your heavenly father can teach you. So be encouraged. There are a, a practical thing for you men, husbands in the church, There are a lot of other guys here in this church, most of whom are husbands, who would love to meet with you to work out how to do all of this better because we do it better together. Hearing from other husbands how they handle certain things or how they interact with their wives on the day-to-day, hearing that helps me learn and grow, not only in my sanctification with the Lord, but in love for my wife. And then, and this may be the hardest part of all, after you've had that discussion, so you've gone through the work of setting up those meetings and reaching out to a man to talk with and um, do some life with in this, after you've done those hard things, do maybe the hardest thing of all and share what you talked about with your wife. And confess the times when you've blown it. And be open about the things you want to be better at. Not to just earn brownie points or to get her off your case for a little while longer. Not that at all. That's not genuine. But to really open up and talk with her about how you want to be a better husband. And here's some ways that men in the church have helped you understand how to do that better. Husbands and wives, married couples, when you find yourself waist deep, in the battle that can be marriage. One of you, just reach out and hit the pause button. Somebody just hit the pause button and stop the crazy cycle. Take a big step back. And it's so difficult in the heat of that moment, but take a big step back and reflect on the joys of the God-given roles in your marriage. Remember how you're called to relate to your spouse and choose to obey God's word even when it's hard.
Even when your feelings are telling you to do something else, choose to obey God's Word in this. There's always reward. There's always beneficial things to those who obey God and His Word. In fact, I'd argue that there's great joy found in marriage for a multitude of reasons. Perhaps the greatest being that we get to represent on earth a beautiful picture of a heavenly relationship. See, every person longs to be loved here on earth the way that Christ perfectly loves his church. If you've never known that kind of love, I would would love to sit down and talk with you today about how Jesus feels about you and his love for you. And so as we reflect on these things and sing one more song this morning, if you'd like to come up and pray with me, I'll be standing up here, come and grab me. Husbands, wives, if you'd like to come down and confess your sin, I would love to talk with you and work out a time that we can talk more about how to do this better. Because this is a picture of something eternal that we want to get as best we can here on this earth. Be encouraged today, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, may you be glorified in our marriages. Just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, may us as husbands give ourselves up for the sake of our bride, for our families. Lord, and model and picture this well. And when we seek to do it well, even when we stumble and we fall, I pray, Lord, that wives would respond in love in the way that they're called to in your word. Lord, and as we move from here next week into what Christ-like families look like, Lord, I pray that our children would be seeing how we love one another, how we submit to one another, how we ask for forgiveness when we blow it so that we're not painting a picture of hypocrisy for our children, but we're painting a picture of genuine love and care for our husband and for our wife, just as Christ loves the church, Lord. Help us to respond accordingly to your spirit this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.